The truth that she played is tremendously important for me to understand in my Christian walk. What does it mean? It is finished. The Lord has given my wife and I opportunities almost every year to speak to different missionary groups, different missions, uh, meet together. And about two years ago, we were asked to do a, a series on spiritual warfare for Anam. Uh, a number of the missionaries that this church supports are a part of Anam. Anam is the American Association of Home Missions or something like that. What it is, it's the different missionary groups that minister in America or have ministries in America come together in fellowship. And they were meeting together and they asked my wife and I if we would go and minister to all these missionaries. And uh, we went down to minister. This was in Arkansas, and it was in the evening. It was the evening of the, the first um, night of the first message that I gave, and it was dark, and I was speaking about a, an incident that took place at our mission. Every summer, we our missionaries come home on furlough. Our mission works in over 100 countries of the world, and so we have missionaries that are always home on furlough. And we have these missionaries, they come out to Warrington, and we minister to them in what's called missionary refresher. And we, we share all kinds of information and material with the missionaries to bring them up to date and to encourage them and to minister to their own spiritual lives. And uh, at this particular missions conference, uh, where our missionaries were there, we had a brand new grandchild at our house, and I wasn't going to get much time to, to see him. And so I drove home between my time of ministering and on the way back, as I was driving back to our headquarters from our house, I flipped on the radio station and got CBS in St. Louis. I can always say the wrong station. I always get the one in, St. Uh, in Kansas City. But you know the one I'm talking about here in St. Louis, the big station. I flipped it on, and they were doing an interview. And as I listened to the interview, I said, that's a wicked spirit. They're interviewing a demon. And I thought, this is amazing on our CBS radio station. And they were questioning. And that's all I knew. I didn't. I just got in the middle of an interview. At the end of that interview, which turned out to be a man who was with um, a Chandler who was out here at the airport, who was having sessions that you could go to learn how to channel wicked, wicked spirits. Uh, one of the new agers that was in town. And this demon was speaking through him, and they were talking to the demon. Maybe some of you heard that program about two years ago. At the end of that, uh, that program, uh, the demon gave an invitation. It went something like this. If you are lonely, and there's a lot of you in St. Louis who are lonely, there are many of us spirits out there who are, who are spirits of departed uh, men and women of renown that would be willing to come into you if you would invite us in. And it went on and on and on on an invitation, how they'd never be lonely, they'd have someone to talk to, someone that would be with them. It was one of the best invitations I've ever heard. And if you didn't know it was a wicked spirit inviting for people to open themselves up to wicked spirits, you'd think it was an invitation to Christ. It was absolutely tremendous. And I just, I just got the chills. I thought, how many people listening to our radio station here are lonely and are believing what they're hearing? How many people are going to fall for this and invite these spirits to come into them? And I just prayed. I said, oh, Lord, don't let anything like this happen and so on. And I was just praying against that invitation that they wouldn't hear and no one would be foolish enough to do something like that. 
Well, I was sharing this as an introduction to Anam, of what's happening in America and the new rise of occultism and all this stuff. And as I was sharing, one of our missionaries here at the church, Bernie Wildy. Bernie Wildy is the president of Missionary Tech Team, the founder and director of that mission. He was there with his wife and his two sons. As I was sharing, and this was an outside meeting, Bernie got up with his little boy and took him off in the darkness. I expected to hear screams and hollers as he was tuning him up to listen to the speaker, but I heard nothing. And uh, I thought, he really got him out of earshot because you can't hear this kid out there at all. He just took him away. What I didn't realize is while I was speaking, the little boy heard a voice that said to him this, if you will do what Mr. Logan is saying, we'll come into you. And so he turned to his dad and he said, Dad, the voices are saying, he's about eight years old, um, the voices are telling me to open myself up and to ask them to come in. And so Bernie took the boy off. Now I want to tell you about the family. They don't have television. It's a very conservative family. The kids do not watch television in their home school. So this is not a boy that has seen a lot of scary movies and all of this. None of that at all. It's a family that travels a lot and ministers a lot, and they minister together. Bernie's dad's a preacher, and his wife's parents have a drive-in ministries, which is an evangelistic ministry. So it's like second generation. This would be a third generation Christian. And this little boy was coming under attack. The, um, the next day, Bernie told me about the boy's attack and said, Jim, would you talk to him? Now, I want to parenthesize right there. Let's go to the scripture and then let's pick up the story of the boy again because we want to share with you the principle of the roaring lion, and we need to put down some scriptures around it before we look back at the story. So turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and let's look at some scriptural truths, and then pick up again the story of this little guy. His name is Jonathan. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church that was struggling there in Ephesus, which was a very wicked occult town. Worship was hooked up with occultism and immorality. You put it together, and that's what they had. And there they were in this town where everybody was going after the, the, the idols, the temple of Diana, and involved in immorality. And so Paul is praying for them, and his prayer is extremely significant of some of the truths he is sharing here. In verse 15, he says in chapter 1, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So the first thing he was praying for is they may understand who Jesus Christ is. That they might understand, understand him and what all it means. And then he goes on and he, and he goes deeper than that in verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding would be open. That not only would this be information, because you can know a lot. In fact, I have a statement in my Bible that says, most Christians are educated beyond their obedience. And so we can know a lot, but that's Paul's prayer. It's not that they would have more information, but that information would affect their lives, that they would have understanding, that what they knew, they would be able to work through their lives and process through them. So he said that, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, be, that you may know the hope of his calling, 
the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. Literally saying that you may know what it means to be in Christ. Now that's the theme of Ephesians. There are 40 times in this book, before you get to chapter 6 in the armor, you have the 40th time it mentions in Christ. So you know it's got to be significantly important. It's such a short little book, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, or in the Lord, or in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's equivalent. And Paul is saying, you've got to know, if you're going to survive in Ephesus, under all of that evil, occultism, all the rise of all this stuff, you must know who you are in Christ. And now he says that you would understand your inheritance. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Now he's going to pick this theme up again in chapter 6 when he gets to the armor. But now he's explaining the power that is ours in Christ. You and I are living in a day that is beginning to parallel the, the Ephesus time. If there ever was a book that is relevant to Christians today, it's the book of Ephesians. Never in our history has America paralleled this, this type of time. So the teaching here is extremely significant for us. That we might know what his power is. And then he goes on and he describes the power in verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Have you ever been to a funeral? Can you imagine, let's say, that, that I'm standing next to you and that's my best friend that died. And I turn to you and I say, are you a Christian? Yes. This is my best friend. Do something. And what do you say? It's too late. It's hopeless. The person is dead. There is nothing I can do. Now, the significant thing here, he's saying, Christians... God has a power for you, the kind of power that can give life to a dead man. It's a power that operates in hopeless situations. It's a supernatural power, isn't it? He said, I want you to realize that the power that God has for you to face daily, that power is the kind of power that gives life to a dead man, number one. And the second thing, he says, that power that is yours, which he, which he uh, wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. It's a kind of power that only gives life to a dead man. It's the kind of power that can take a man off the earth into the third heaven or into the presence of God. That is the power that is ours in Christ. Now, what is Christ doing in heaven? He, he said he's seated at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities, powers, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. And he put all these powers under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus today is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? Literally, positionally, he's seated. Why is he seated? Pat played it for us. He sat down because the work is what? Finished. He wasn't tired. The work is finished. He sat down because the work of salvation, the work of victory, is never going to have to be done again. It's all done. And he's seated there at the right hand of the Father. And all of the forces of darkness are under his feet. Not under his head, not under his body, 
but under his feet. Why under his feet? Because it speaks of total subjection. When a king would conquer another king in the Old Testament, you read about them, he would lay down and he would put his foot on his neck. Would you let me put my foot on your neck? No, because your neck is very vulnerable. And you'd have to be in total subjection, total defeat to ever let anybody put their foot on your neck. And Jesus has his foot on the neck of the enemy. We need to realize this. Paul is praying, you've got to know this if you're going to make it in Ephesus. You've got to understand who you are in Christ. Now, the second important truth we need to see is in verse 6 of chapter 2. We're skipping a lot, but we're running out of time. <laughs> this is introduction so that we know where we are when we get into this whole thing of resisting. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. If you are in Christ, you are walking on this earth, but you are seated in heaven. And you're seated in Christ. And the enemy is also under your feet because you're in Christ. It's extremely important truth. The enemy is under Christ's feet. And because I am in Christ, the enemy is under my feet. And he's defeated. And that's what all the songs we're talking about. Martin Luther had an understanding of this and put it in his hymn in a way that no one has ever put truth down as the mighty fortress. And if you look at all of the verses, we only have some of the verses in, in our hymnal, that we might understand who we are in Christ. We need to know this when we come against the forces of darkness. I need to know who I am. Now, if you would turn to chapter 6 of Ephesians, he says, finally, my brethren, in verse 10, be strong in the Lord. See, my strength is in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He's already explained that mighty power. He said, if you're going to face the forces of darkness, if you're going to walk in victory against the attacks of the enemy, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know your position and that it's not your determination that's going to make it. In fact, Martin Luther said, if you determine to stand against the enemy and your own determination, your striving will be what? Losing. I must realize that I'm standing in Christ as I stand against the forces of darkness. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the enemy. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand, stand therefore. Three times we're told to stand against the forces of darkness. He tells us to stand. It's interesting the change of pronouns there. Paul says, you put on the armor so that you can stand but he says, we wrestle. He included himself as we in the wrestling. That every single believer wrestles against the forces of darkness. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's the principle here of the roaring line we want to share with you. Remember, the enemy has well-developed schemes, powerful resources, and has great experience in the battle. For some of us, this may be a new thing to get involved in battle. But he's been battling for centuries. And so we're battling a foe that is very skillful in battle. We are told specifically there are six major areas in which Christians can come under attack. There are more than that, but there are six mentioned in the scripture. One of them is here, and that's in the area of worry and anxiety. 
He tells us, casting all your care upon him, he careth for you. If you would tell me what you worry about, I can tell you the size of your God. Right? What you worry about tells the world the size of your God. Because we worry about things that God can do nothing about, right? My situation is so big that God can do nothing about this. We gave this as an invitation to the first service. We'll give it the second service. If you've got a situation that is so big that God can do nothing about, my wife and I are committed to worry with you. If you'll come forward and share that with us, we'll worry with you because truly you need to worry. I mean, we really need to get uh, concerned about this if God can do nothing about your situation. But that's a trick of the enemy to make me think that my situation is so big, so different, so unique, that God can do nothing about that situation. Now, he tells us to be sober. That word sober is cautious. He says to be vigilant. That word is alert. Because you have an adversary, the devil. That's one who opposes you. There is one who is opposing you, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The word devour means to gulp down quickly in the Greek. If you translate that word in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, you have two words that describe it very well. It said the fish devoured Jonah. It said the Red Sea devoured the Egyptians after Israel got across. It's the idea of being swallowed up. He says, be careful, Christian. You've got an enemy who wants to swallow you up. Dr. Unger, and some of you have an Unger Bible dictionary, some of you have an Unger Bible, a study Bible, said this. Certainly this conveys the idea that the powers of darkness are able to make very serious encroachment upon the life of a child of God. In fact, they go so far as to kill the body, Matthew 10, 28. How dare a believer ignore this warning or naively tone it down, its terrifying implications. Dr. Merle Unger, who taught for years at Dallas Theological Seminary. And then he tells us, resist steadfast in the flesh. Resist means to push away, to stand pushing away until he leaves. How do we push away the enemy? The same way Jesus did. We push away the enemy with a rhema. What is a rhema? A rhema is a principle of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a rhema. We're that's what Jesus did. Jesus did not quote scripture word perfectly in Matthew or Luke, either one. You look for it. Try to find it in the scripture word perfectly. It's not there. Ephesians 6 says the sword that the Holy Spirit uses is the word of God. It's not logos, the printed word. It's rhema. It is the spoken word. It's the sayings of scripture. We speak out the sayings of scripture empowered by the Holy Spirit against the forces of darkness, and they will what? Leave. James tells us to resist Jesus resists, were to use that very same example, raming the word of God back to the enemy. Were to stand, 
steadfast in the faith. The word faith there is, is, is literally standing on what I know is true. I stand on the truth of scriptures. I stand on, and, and I know this is true, and I reign of the word of God, and I don't move from that position. That's what God is telling us to do. In fact, steadfast is the opposite of anxiety in verse 7. Just the opposite. When I am anxious, I am not steadfast. When I am steadfast, I can stand against anxiety. Now let's put the story together and let's put this all together. Because I want you to take the principle of the roaring lion home with you. If you don't take anything else home, take it home with you. After the meeting, Bernie said, would you see my son and talk to him tomorrow? And I said, yes, I would. Then I thought, what am I going to tell him? I've never talked to a seven-year-old boy that's been under demonic attack before in my life. I don't know what to do. So I just prayed, Lord, you know what I should say. I'm not sure what to say. And so after I spoke in the morning session, we went to the, they have a motorhome. We went to the motorhome. He stepped on the stairs. I'll never forget. He turned around, he looked at me, and he said, Mr. Logan, are you good at this? <laughs> I said, I'm learning. <laughs> he said, well, I hope you're good at this. I got big problems. So he went in that murder home and we sat down. And, I, and he was serious because he had, a, he had pencil and a tablet. He was going to take notes. And I said, the first thing I want you to write down is 1 John 5.18b. So let me quote it for you. It says, I am in Christ and the wicked one touches me not. And he said, that's a good one. I said, good, you write that down. And he wrote that down. And then it's just amazing how the Lord just told me what to say because I didn't have any idea what to say. I just looked at him and I just, as he's writing, I just, this thought came to me. And this is what I said to him. I said, Jonathan, have you ever been to the zoo? He said, yep. I said, have you ever, did you ever go into the snake house? He said, yes. I said, you went in the snake house? Yep. You really went in there? Uh -huh. He says, why? I said, well, there's poisonous snakes in there. He said, but Mr. Logan, there's the glass. And then he said this, Jesus is the glass, isn't he? And I said, yes, Jesus. That's an eight-year-old. They got more insight sometimes than we do. He said, Jesus is the glass, isn't he? And I said, yes. He said, he'll protect me. I said, yes, that's what I'm telling you, 1 John 5, 18b. And then I, I just thought of this. I said, Jonathan, if you and I were walking, let's say that we stayed too long and it's dark, and we're walking through the zoo, and all of a sudden the lion roars, would you be afraid? And he said, I think so. And I said, if I told you he was behind bars and reminded you of that truth, would you be afraid? He said, no, I wouldn't be afraid. Now, what is the principle of the roaring lion? And this is what I want you to take home with you. The principle of the roaring lion, I wish it was the evening service, except when I'm sharing in the evening, I can't share in the morning. So you have to have it in the morning and visualize it's night. And as I get up to close the service, Rick gets up and says, uh, we just got an, a bulletin, but there's been a wreck of a circus on the freeway, and there's a lion loose in the area. We don't know where he is. We just know he's somewhere, and they haven't found him yet. So as you go to your car, just be careful. And you're one of those that likes to <laughs> exhort one another daily and evenly, and you're exhorting at night, and you realize all of a sudden everybody's gone. You parked way in the back and all the lights are off. It's one of these stormy nights, and it's dark out there.
and you leave out of the back of the church, and you're walking to the back parking lot, and as you're walking, all of a sudden you hear a crunch, and you stop, and you hear another crunch, and it's just pitch black. Then all of a sudden, there is a deafening roar. What is your response? I mean, if you live through that. (laughs) If you're still standing, let me tell you what you do. You will make a decision on the basis of your emotions. And it will probably be wrong. The principle of the roaring line is when he roars, don't run. Don't make decisions on the basis of your emotions. Stand and resist them. There are so many Christians that are running because of the circumstances and the enemy's working and they're making decisions on their sight or what they feel and they're making the wrong decisions. In Africa, the way the lions hunt, lions go in groups that are called prides. A pride of lion will go downwind of gazelles or zebras, and they'll hide in the rocks and bushes. An older lion will circle the group and sit windward, so the wind is catching his scent and blowing it down. And the the animals are getting extremely nervous as they smell the scent of this older lion. And when that lion roars, the gazelles or the zebras will run away from the lion to where the pride is waiting to attack them. Beloved, God has called us to what? Stand, not to run. And when the lion roars, stand and resist him with the word of God, with the principles of Scripture. And the Scripture says, if you will resist him, he will flee from you. I trust you'll take it with you. The enemy is roaring, and he may be roaring on your family right now. He may be roaring in your personal life right now. Do not make decisions on the basis of your feelings. Make decisions on the basis of the truth of Scripture, and stand, and God will lead you. Father, teach us to stand. Teach us not to go through life responding from one roar to another, running and running and running and making decisions that are not wise. Oh, Father, we know when the lion roars, there's a tremendous temptation to give in to those emotions. But, oh, Father, may we stand in your protection, stand in your victory, and resist steadfast as we stand in the faith. May we take this truth with us, Father, and may we practice it so there will be great stability in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.